Welcome to the Building Texas Business Podcast. Interviews with thought leaders and organizational visionaries from across industry. Join us as we talk about the latest trends, challenges, and growth opportunities to take your business to the next level. The Building Texas Business Podcast is brought to you by Boyer Miller, providing counsel beyond expectations. Find out how we can make a meaningful difference to your business at BoyerMiller.com. And by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Discover more at yourpodcast.team. Now here's your host, Chris Hanslick. In today's episode, you will meet Lee Emke, President and CEO of the Houston Zoo. And as the Houston Zoo celebrates its 100th anniversary, you will learn from Lee how it remains focused on conservation efforts around the world by staying true to its mission of saving animals in the wild. You will also learn that the first animal at the Houston Zoo was a bison named Earl. Lee, I want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for taking time to be with us today. My pleasure. So you're the president and CEO of the Houston Zoo. Could you just give us a little bit of the history around the origins of the Houston Zoo? Well, you know, it's been fun this year because it's our actually our 100th birthday. So we've been doing a lot of research and kind of looking back to see, you know, how did the zoo get started and what's happened over the 100 years that we've been in Herman Park. And, you know, the origin story is a classic one for a lot of zoos. It was sort of, you know, a couple animals that were left over from other things. And someone said, hey, let's start a zoo. But in particular with the Houston Zoo, it was great. There was a bison whose name was Earl who was literally the first animal to be taken to Herman Park as part of the what became, obviously, a much bigger zoo later on. Okay. Who were some of the original founders then, city leaders uh, or other philanthropists? Yeah, Mayor Holcomb at the time. Okay. Oscar Holcomb was uh, very much behind this. He was sort of pushing for a lot of cultural institutions and things to, to make Houston uh, a great city. And he thought, and you know, at that time, zoos were something that you know, many cities are starting to develop. And so he was really kind of pushing that from the beginning. And, uh, you know, a number of the parks director, Brock was his last name, was also very engaged in that. So they, you know, secured the land and started getting donations of animals from various places. And then, you know, it said, well, we need to be a serious zoo at some point. There was an announcement in the paper, um, and it was April 30th, 1922, where they basically said, you know, the city leaders are committed. They want to have a solid you know, modern zoo for Houston. Well, that's fascinating. So let's, you know, talk about a hundred years is an impressive longevity, right? How, going from the early days, I guess, when it was just Earl the Bison, how has the zoo evolved over its hundred years? Well, it's been continuous. And if you kind of look at it, it, it traces the history of Houston as a city in a lot of ways, the ups and downs, you know, the boom and bust cycle that the city's been through, the zoo kind of went through all that as well. So the early days, it was a you know, period of pretty fast growth. Um, very quickly, there were you know, hundreds of animals where there had originally just been Earl. And then there were some slowdowns during the Depression, obviously. It was, you know, there were calls to close the zoo because it wasn't getting enough funding. But in the 50s and 60s in particular, there was a, a real push to grow the zoo. And as Houston was growing at that time, the zoo expanded significantly, not so much on its footprint, but just in terms of the number of animals and exhibits and programs that it offers. And then in the uh, 70s and 80s, it got a little bit slower, again, kind of mirroring the, the economy. Right. Uh, 
And then what kind of the most momentous occasion for the zoo really was in 2002 when there was a, an agreement made with the city to privatize the zoo. Um, so it's now operated by a nonprofit, Houston Zoo, Inc. Uh, on behalf of the city still owns the zoo and provides some support. But that was really the turning point from being, you know, a pretty, you know, a good zoo um, to one of the great zoos in the country right now. <clears throat> That's great. In fact, I know that the Houston Zoo is one of the most visited zoos in the United States. You know, have, have you gone about achieving and maintaining such a, uh, I guess, a high status of attendance? Well, it helps to be in the fourth biggest city in the country. Right. You know, for starters, <laughs> that helps. Have, you know, the attraction uh, zone for the city, you know, the number of people who are around the zoo. Um, is a huge benefit. But I think the other thing is our location. The fact that we're very central in Herman Park, we're right in the middle of things. You know, it's interesting. I've worked at a couple of other zoos that had been built more on the outskirts of town. The Minnesota Zoo, which was built in the 1970s, was actually built in an outer suburb with the idea that we need a lot of space for a zoo, which is great, but people maybe didn't find that, you know, didn't think they had time to make the commute, you know, over the river to go see the zoo. Whereas we are so central, and Herman Park has been such a core part of you know, Houstonians' existence for more than 100 years, that I think that's really helped us out, that you know, we're right, right in the middle of things, we're accessible to everyone. And the other thing is, you know, we have a really good product. I think right. the zoo is great, and we've been adding uh, new exhibits and new, new features you know, pretty much on a regular basis. And word is out. People, you know, I come, when I first came to Houston, I did the taxi cab test, which is, you know, ask the taxi cab driver, what are they, you know, what's the zoo like here? Positive, glowing reviews. And I kind of get that from almost everyone. Everyone remembers the zoo, even if they thought, you know, back in the day, you know, maybe it wasn't that great, but they still loved it. It's a family memory. But then I also hear, and we're so excited about what's happened at the zoo for the last 15 or 20 years to see the growth and improvement. Yeah. Well, I can speak personally, right? I, with the two daughters I raised in Houston, we went to the zoo so many times and I have memories of my, my oldest daughter from where she went to preschool. We would drive through Herman Park by the zoo every morning on the way to school and you can see the giraffe exhibit. And so I think great job uh, making it a wonderful family attraction. You mentioned that you've been adding new things. What are some of the more recent attractions that have been added to the zoo that maybe uh, some of our listeners don't know about? Sure. Well, again, starting back in 2002 when the zoo privatized, I'd say that three quarters of the zoo has been rebuilt since then. So if you haven't visited in the last 20 years, most of it is going to seem new. Uh, but particularly in the last five years, we've done a strategic plan and a master plan that turned into a capital campaign, and we've been building some amazing new exhibits. We built the Texas Wetlands that focuses on you know, our local environment and features you know, alligators and whooping cranes and bald eagles, which is, you know, we thought it was important to focus not just on exotic wildlife, but on places right here in Texas that are important. So that opened up in 2019. 2020, we opened an exhibit uh, called South America's Pantanal. And it's, a, you know, we've asked people, do they know what the Pantanal is? <laughs> and we had 97% of our guests didn't. And we thought it was important to kind of change that perception because the Pantanal is probably the richest wildlife area in all of South America. It's right in the heart of South America in Brazil. It has you know, every kind of animal that lives in that continent in huge numbers. And the zoo's been focused on conservation programs there for many years, so we wanted to weave that story together. So the Pantanal exhibit that opened in 2020 is one of the highlights of the zoo now. It's got jaguars and anacondas and tapirs and giant river otters and birds and fish and the whole ecosystem represented in a pretty unique way that 
you know, we're really excited and proud about how that's come out. We've redone our exhibits for orangutans and for bears in, in recent years. Just And before I got here in the 2010 to 2015, we opened the African forest exhibits with new areas for giraffes and rhinos and chimpanzees, and then uh, a world-class gorilla exhibit in 2015. Yeah. So that's, uh, for starters, that, just a few things going on. The, the South American uh Exhibit sounds amazing. Yeah, no, it's, you know, the idea that we're, you know, we're trying to move towards the idea of showing whole ecosystems, that how animals fit together as part of the environment, rather than the traditional way of seeing several, you know, similar types of animals, you know, grouped, you know, all the monkeys over here, right. et cetera. And I think it's, uh, people have really resonated with it because it feels like you're kind of on a little mini safari to, you know, a, a wild place and seeing animals in natural habitats, but also seeing the whole variety of animals that, and it was a bit great. We had the ambassador to Brazil, who's here in, in Houston, came and visited with her family. And she said, this, you know, feels just like home. So what better compliment, right? Yeah. So Tell us about the mission of the zoo and how your conservation efforts kind of align with the day-to-day operations uh, of the zoo. Sure. And I think, you know, zoos are still primarily perceived and, you know, and we don't want that to change as places to take families for a good day out. You know, in fact, you know, we do a survey of our guests and most people come to the zoo, not even necessarily to see animals, but they want to do something with their family or friends in an outdoor environment. And the animals are part of that. So there's that. We know that's sort of why people come to zoos in general, but we have shifted why we exist pretty significantly because the, the things that we exhibit, if you think about it, are disappearing. Animals all over the world and their habitats are being lost. And we have, we believe, a responsibility to do something to actually stop that. And so our mission is to save animals in the wild. And we do that by connecting people who come to the zoo, whether, you know, they're not coming necessarily for education or to support conservation, but when they're here, they're a very receptive audience. And what we're telling people is the very fact that you're coming to the zoo and buying a membership or buying an admission to the zoo is actually supporting uh, the work that we're doing to save animals in the wild. So visiting the zoo is actually an act of conservation, which is something maybe is not what is top of mind for our guests, but yeah. we think you know, ultimately that's why we exist. I would bet that resonates well <clears throat> with Houstonians or whoever your customer base is, because they never thought of it that way, but then they feel like they're doing something to help give back by simply spending a Saturday morning at the zoo. Yeah, it's a fun day, but it's, there's a value add. There's yeah. something, there's a purpose to the to the visit as well. So the zoo is currently supporting 33 wildlife conservation projects in 17 countries around the world. How do you balance those efforts, global, those global efforts with what you're doing locally, and, and maybe could you shed some light uh, on some of those projects that the, the zoo's involved in? Sure. And what we're trying to do more and more is to connect the animals that we have at the zoo that people are coming to see with conservation programs in nature where those animals live. And so, for example, with gorillas, we said when the gorilla exhibit was being planned, at that point, we didn't have any gorilla conservation programs that we were supporting. But we intentionally went out and made some connections with organizations in Rwanda and in Congo and said, you know, we want to help support what you're doing to help save gorillas in nature. And that's going to be part of the story that we're going to tell our guests when they come to the zoo to see our gorilla exhibit. So we're trying to make them integrated. I guess that's the best way to put it uh, with the the guest experience and the conservation programs are, are linked. 
And we're also looking for long-term partnerships because there's so many conservation needs out there and it would be easy for us to just write checks and say, you know, here, go you know, do what you need to do and you know, help save X, Y, or Z. But we're uh, looking for long-term relationships because conservation is a process, not a product. Things right. go on and on and, and you'll get immediate results. So we're looking for partners who we know are going to be in it for the long haul who are also connected deeply to their communities. So we're typically looking for organizations that are grassroots in whether it's Brazil or Madagascar or Africa. So local um, scientists and individuals who are trying to do the work there, we partner with them. We also love the fact that it's a two-way street because those people will actually you know, more and more are feeling like they're part of the Houston Zoo. I loved, you know, I was in Rwanda a couple of months ago and went to see the headquarters for the gorilla doctors, which is a group of veterinarians who are taking care of gorillas in the wild when they become sick and are, are injured. And I went <laughs> wow. to the front door, and the front door, there's a huge Houston Zoo logo right there. Oh, I like that. Are, and yeah. to see that level of connection and the fact that that team was so proud of the fact that you know they're representing a zoo that they may never, or a country they've never even been to. But so it's a different way of focusing on conservation than some organizations do it. And I think it's uh, proven to be a really successful model. That's great. Well, just maybe to educate our, our listeners, and you can pick the gorillas if you want. How does the zoo go about sourcing the animals? I know we read about in the paper and see on the news when like a baby's born there, but... <clears throat> How does it start and, and what's that process look like? Yeah, and it's so different from the days of Earl the Bison, where basically, you know, animals were caught in the wild and brought to zoos. That was you know, pretty typical up until really 20 or 30 years ago. Today, because you know, we don't want to be a consumer of wildlife, uh, we're quite the opposite. We want to uh, protect and, and increase wildlife. So 95% of the mammals that are in zoos are born in other zoos. Uh, or born in the zoo that they're in. Okay. Um, and we work very collaboratively with zoos all over the country and really all over the world in exchanging animals to keep genetics strong and, and the right bloodlines and all of that and to balance the population so that it, you know, it works out that the zoo, each zoo has the animals they need for exhibits, but it's also, you know, we're not taking animals out of the wild. And so most animals in zoos are multiple generation, you know, captive born zoo animals. Okay. In some cases, we're able to actually return animals to the wild, and we, you know, we love when we can do that. And we're doing that specifically here in Texas with two species of animals. They're fairly small and obscure, but they're really cool. One's called the Atwater's Prairie Chicken, which is a grouse, and the other is the Houston Toad. Both of those animals would be completely extinct in the wild, or completely extinct, if it wasn't for the Houston Zoo bringing them in, setting up breeding programs, and finding partners so that we can reintroduce them back into the wild. So, you know, back to your original question, we are you know, basically net producers of animals as opposed to consumers. Okay. And we work as part of a global organization really to maintain uh, healthy populations of animals and zoos. Is the uh, re-entry into the wild for those two species going well? Yeah, I mean, it's been up and down. The prairie chickens were doing great, and then Harvey flooded most of the area that they had been reintroduced to, and we lost uh, mm. a good half of the reintroduced population. But in the last few years, the hatchings and the reintroductions have been going really well. Houston toads are now in several locations where, again, they originally lived and now um, have been reintroduced, and they're doing really well. So we're excited about that. But, it, you know, these are pro projects that have been going on for years. And back to that idea that conservation is not a one-and-done kind of thing. It's a process that takes a, a long-term commitment. Sure. Well, that's congratulations on that. So 
Let's talk about the last two years. Hard not to, right? Uh, COVID pandemic. How has that affected the zoo from an operational standpoint, from visitors? And what are some of the things that you've done to try to shift or adjust what you were doing at the zoo to keep it viable, keep it going? Boy, what a, a lot of facets to that question because it, it's been a, a matter of a, you know adaptation and kind of you know see the pants evolution uh, right. of how we do business. How we, you know, initially we were closed for two and a half months. Uh, we were actually one of the first uh, institutions to say, you know, this is we're going to have to close, um, and that immediately meant that most of the people who work at the zoo didn't need to be there and we didn't want them there. Obviously at that point we we're trying to, then we, you know, did a gradual reopening that included, you know, a lot of social distancing and, and various requirements, trying to kind of keep up with the CDC and the state requirements and as well. But what's really happened is a complete change in our business practice. You know, forever a zoo has been a place that you wake up on a Saturday morning and say, Hey, let, you know, let's go to the zoo. We've gone to a reservation system now, so we're much more like a sporting event or um, even a movie where people now, you know, in advance buy tickets online and come on a time ticket basis to the zoo, which has actually been great because it's allowed us to spread out attendance over during the day and during the week. Because, you know, anyone who knows, you know, if you try to, it used to be, it still can be on a Saturday, a beautiful Saturday morning, and everyone wants to go to the zoo at nine o'clock. It can be not a great experience. Right. Long lines and hard to find parking. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So it's been interesting. We didn't know how that was going to play. That was a complete shift in way. But our our audiences have, uh, you know, said, this is great. They prefer, you know, the guest experience is better. People have adapted seamlessly to, you know, a no cash, basically Mm -hmm. um, all online reservation system. And the great news again for us is that we're capturing a lot of information about our guests and able to, you know, provide special offerings to them that maybe we didn't even know who our guests were before. So from a business perspective, it's changed things quite a bit from, you know, staffing and keeping people you know, happy. That's, we're seeing the same thing every other business is in terms of the, you know, the great resignation and people uh, reevaluating life and saying, sure, we want to change things. You know, we have gone through, we did a, a pretty significant compensation study to really look at the, you know, all levels of our staffing and whether we were, what we needed to do. And we did find, like many other organizations, that, you know, entry-level positions and some of those things were, you know, we, we needed to do more. And luckily, we had the resources to be able to do that. And we're seeing, you know, some pretty positive results from that as well. That's good. I would imagine you said you closed for two months, but not everyone could go home because you had to have some essential core staff there to take care of the animals, right? For sure. And, you know, it's interesting. People think, you know, who works at the zoo, it's only about 30% of our staff are directly involved in animal care. Because when you think about it, the zoo is kind of like a small city. We have every kind of operation that you would think about, you know, shops and fundraising activities and marketing and finance and all those. Most of those functions or many of them could be done remotely and, and were. But certainly the animal care and the facilities maintenance and security were areas where we always we had to continue the 24-7 operation. So, sure. Which was, you know, it's challenging to suddenly have kind of two groups of people, the people who have to be there and the people who are there, you know, you know on call at, at best. But I think we've done a good job of reintegrating the teams since since you know, over the last two and a half years as things have evolved. Sure. So, you know, that you bring up a good point because I think a lot of businesses are dealing with or have dealt with that split workforce. Some that don't have an option 
to work remote and others that do. What are some of the things that you tried to do as the leader, the president and CEO of the organization to be present for both groups and, and maybe for those that didn't have the option to work remote, let them know that you know they're still valued and what they were doing was important, even though they may have felt like it a burden on them that they had to come in every day. Sure. Number one, be present. I, I think I worked remotely for two days and then I said, you know what, I got to get to the zoo. Yeah. And so now the advantage was it was the first few months because traffic was down. I was riding my bike to the zoo. And it, was kind <laughs> of a, it was sort of a different experience. But, you know, being present on grounds, I think, meant a lot to the people who had to be there and meant a lot to me that, you know, feeling you know, con- you know connected. You know, the communication piece, you can probably never communicate enough, but there was a constant, sent, you know, doing lots of messaging to the entire team about, you know, what was happening, how things were changing, and how um, grateful we were for what everyone was doing sure. in the circumstance. Did you also then, you know, you being present on site every day as you're communicating with the staff that's remote, find some challenges of where maybe they felt like indirectly you were there was pressure that they should be there just because you were? Did you sense that or encounter that? You know, it's interesting. I think a lot of people wanted to come back. They wanted to be back as soon as they could. And when we, you know, once we started bringing people back, we saw that. But the flip side of that was they wanted to be back, but not all the time, I think, which is fair. I think it's a new way of working. I think we're finding ways to balance that out, that, you know, the increased flexibility for, you know, to be able to take a day here and there and work from home. You know, we're encouraging that. And, like everyone else kind of figuring that out. <clears throat> so just you know, maybe a little bit more about you personally, what, you know, before you came to Houston, you know, what were you doing? You were working in, in the zoo industry, I guess. And- I was, but I have a kind of not a checkered past, but a, <laughs> when you look at, you know, how do zoo leaders, where do they come from? I think traditionally it was from animal care or veterinary services and you kind of were an animal person who ran a zoo. But zoos have become so much more, you know, their businesses now. Sure. And so you're seeing people come from all uh, walks of life to into zoo management. But I got here via kind of, I started out actually as a lawyer long ago. In oh, wow. Away. A recovering lawyer. Okay. Yeah. I think <laughs> I fully recovered at this point. But, and, but I was always interested in the environment, environmental issues, and had seen what zoos were evolving into back in the 80s, in particular from moving away from being menageries to conservation organizations. And I wanted to be part of that. And the way I ended up being part of it, because I had another interest, which was landscape architecture and exhibit design. So I became a zoo exhibit designer. There's not a whole lot of them in the world, but I was one. Got hired to go to the Bronx Zoo in New York, which at that time was doing a massive rebuilding, uh, reimagination of that campus. And so started out in the zoo world as an exhibit designer, building natural habitat experiences for animals and people. And then eventually, you know, I was interested in the bigger picture of the operation of the zoo and the mission of the zoo. So I was asked to uh, go in as CEO and president of the Minnesota Zoo in Minneapolis. And I was there for 15 years, which was fantastic. And then this opportunity in Houston came up. The Houston Zoo at that point had a great reputation as a zoo that was on the rise. So it was a very sought after opportunity. And the board said, I think they were looking for someone who could manage a period of big growth and revitalization at the zoo. And um, we signed on the dotted line and I've been here since 2015 and it's been fantastic. Very good. Well, we're lucky to have you. You were talking about the diverse workforce you have. What's the total uh, number of employees that the zoo currently has? It's about 400, which is a little less than it was pre-COVID, but it's been building back up in the last couple of years. Uh, So that's 400 at, you know, working 
directly for the zoo. And then in addition, we our food and beverage um, and retail operation is uh, a second a partner. And so there's probably another 200 to 300 um, of those folks who are working at the zoo as well. So it's a pretty big operation. You know, I expected it was going to be a big operation, but it's you know, maybe two or three times bigger than I expected. That's a large number of people mm-hmm. to manage. How would you describe your leadership style in running an organization of that magnitude? Well, I like to be inclusive and I like to listen. I think that's been, you know, it's important to really, you know, before you make a decision, you got to hear what people are thinking and, and, you know, take it into consideration. Maybe not follow what they're asking, but, you know, I, I really rely a lot on uh, my senior team and the next uh, tier down of leadership at the zoo to make a lot of the decisions and to keep me informed. I get more deeply involved in things where I think it's important for me to do or my expertise in exhibit design, for example. I can't help myself. <laughs> um, I'm in there with a red pen on the design um, drawings. And then the, the community outreach, you know, working with, you know, we have, we rely so much on Houston's amazing donor community. And so a big part of my job is working with folks who, you know, already have supported the zoo or potentially might. Yeah. So it's kind of you know, being out there, being transparent about what we're doing and trying to uh, get people excited about it because it certainly excites me. Yeah. Have you had any mentors along the way that kind of helped you develop and evolve as a leader? Absolutely. And I wouldn't, when I mentioned the Bronx Zoo, which was my first zoo job. Um, the leader of that organization was a guy named Bill Conway, who literally in the zoo community around the entire world, you know, they refer to him, you know, un ironically as God. I mean, he was just the guy who just philosophically took zoos from where they were into where we're headed now and was just brilliant. But he was also a very, you know, warm and open guy. And he was very encouraging to me early on in my career and to many other folks. So Bill Conway, sort of, he just passed away last year. And so Mm. uh, someone that really meant a lot to our, our community and yeah, pretty much, you know, everywhere I've gone, I've had people been, who have been helpful and everyone has a boss, right? So right. as a zoo CEO, I have a board of directors um, who ultimately, you know, are making a lot of the decisions or supporting or not supporting decisions <laughs> that you make. And I've been blessed to have fantastic board leadership basically throughout my career, but particularly here in Houston. That's great. So yeah, this podcast is about businesses in Texas and building them. A lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs or business owners and you know, you've been, you've led one zoo for 15 years. You're now at seven years into the Houston Zoo. Any words of advice you might give to a business owner or an aspiring entrepreneur, just when you think about a couple important qualities in leading an organization, when you're the president CEO that you've got to glean from your career? Well, I kind of hit it earlier. I think, you know, okay. really taking the time to listen to your, you know, whether it's your customers or your potential customers or your your workforce, there's a lot to learn from them. Yeah. So I think that's really critical. And humility is part of that. You can't, you know, sure. you, you may have the best idea in the world, but it might not be the best. Right. So sometimes you got to accept that. So as you mentioned earlier, kind of this where you are with your staff in this hybrid workforce, what, what are some of the things that you are, have done, maybe are doing now or have plans to do this year as you work to reintegrate and reconnect to kind of bring that culture back together? Yeah, which is a really important thing because for a few years, we had a zoo culture that was the... Um, envy of all the other zoos around the country. They were asking us, you know, how do you get this where everyone at the zoo is bought into the mission of this organization? You know, whether it's the people at the front gate or the the groundskeepers, 
we were finding ways to involve all of them in the conservation mission of the zoo. Okay. Um, in a pretty, and then with that, you know, with COVID, a lot of that stopped. So we're, you know, focused on getting that back up and running. And, you know, one of the ways is just, you know, being back in person, having uh, all staff meetings. Uh, we had a couple, we've had a couple this year, finally, to kind of get back and just to have everyone see each other and, you know, remember, oh, yeah, you <laughs> right? it's, it, it's funny how fast that 18 months, two years have gone and people are like, wow. Yep. Incredible. So a lot of that personal, you know, and then recognition, you know, everyone wants to be recognized for the value that they're you know, providing to an organization. People want to be recognized in different ways. So we're, you know, looking at, you know, whether it's, you know, a public award or just a attaboy, um, right. finding ways to do that. That's one of the challenges, right? Is everyone that, that appreciation or everyone values something different. So trying to figure that out. We're so used to a company doing it one way and that didn't necessarily connect with everybody. For sure. Uh, you know, and, you know, we're a nonprofit. So for a lot of businesses, you know, the way you show appreciation is with money. And we yeah. do that to an extent, but obviously that's not the primary way. I think for us, luckily, we have this incredible mission and this incredible place that people can get behind. And given, you know, the right, you know, right communication, I think that often is the reward in itself, is, is realizing what important work people are are all doing to help save animals in the wild and to help create a great experience for people here in Houston. Great. So let's get back to the, the centennial. What are some of the things that the zoo is doing to promote and celebrate the hundred year anniversary? It's a long list, uh, <laughs> but it kind of starts with, you know, we had a big ceremony. The mayor Turner came out and we had a lot of our donors uh, at the zoo on April 30th, which was the actual hundredth birthday of the zoo which was a great press event. And that actually was followed up by a half an hour TV special that was really good, that really looked into the, the whole history of the zoo. We've got, you know, on site, we've got banners and um, a timeline that shows the history of the zoo and just, you know, for people who are actually at the zoo. And then our advertising campaigns and our, especially on our online uh, presence is really focused on getting people's memories, you know, getting, we've had hundreds of people who have sent in pictures or anecdotes about their experience with the zoo, why they love it. And so kind of that, you know, grassroots appeal, and then just getting the word out about, you know, what's, you know, what's happening at the zoo, whether it's, you know, every Saturday, we're going to have kind of a mini birthday party, um, okay. the rest of the zoo, rest of the year. And then we're really, you know, because it's a whole year long celebration that started April 30th, the most exciting thing we're going to be able to offer at the end of it, it will be early next year, we'll be opening the biggest exhibit that we've ever done at the zoo by a mile, which is the Galapagos Islands. Wow. Uh, which Tell is, us more about that. Well, if people, if anyone who's seen a, a TV special or has actually had a chance to visit the Galapagos knows it's just the most unique place, one of the most amazing places in the world. And, you know, obviously really important in the history of science and, you know, but it also has history with, you know, there were pirates there and all kinds of crazy stuff. All right. But the animal life there is unique. And no other zoo in the world has really ever done an exhibit focused on the Galapagos Islands. And so we will be the first uh, to do it. But it's funny because it started out, really, the whole idea was we need a new sea lion exhibit. If you remember the zoo, the sea lions have been swimming in the same kind of swimming pool in the middle of the zoo for, you know, over 50 years. All right. We said, we need to build a new habitat for sea lions. But then at the same time, we're saying, but we want all of our new exhibits to connect to conservation programs. And sea lions in California and up the West Coast are doing just fine. There's no conservation need or story there. But I was reminded by our head veterinarian that there are sea lions that live in the Galapagos Islands. And so 
and where we have a history of doing conservation work and there's some incredible animals like the giant tortoises and iguanas. So we kind of put those ideas together and said, let's build this beautiful new habitat for our sea lions right at the front of the zoo when you first come in, but put it in the context of the Galapagos Islands. So instead of, you know, Fisherman's Wharf kind of exhibit for sea lions, this is something you're going to come in and see this amazing lava landscape with you know, cactus coming right down to the ocean sea lions literally before you even come into the zoo and then from there it's a whole experience that has giant tortoises and iguanas and sharks and rays and penguins all in various habitats that all represent the galapagos islands but that will be done for the first time in many cases at, at our zoo and it's about a 70 million dollar project by so uh, almost half of this big capital campaign that we're engaged in is being um invested in this okay it's right at the front door so the minute you come into the zoo it's going to be a showpiece a big wow yep so beyond curb appeal to kind mm-hmm. of the yeah and and we'll really bring visibility to the galapagos islands which is you know one of the great places in the world that we want people to know about so just for i guess context you said it's the biggest exhibit the the zoo has ever done by you know how big will this be versus what's yeah. second now, acreage, it's probably about the same size as, as some of our big African exhibits that we've built. So it's about um, two and a half acres total, but it's designed so it winds around on top of itself. And so the actual length is about three football fields as you walk through it. Oh, wow. um, but you will never, you know, you don't sense any of that because it's very uh, choreographed. So each time you go around the corner, it's sort of a new experience. And the other thing that's going to be great about it, and I especially today as we came into this out of the garage it's air conditioned it's almost like okay. going to be uh, kind of an indoor space which it's uh, important it's pretty important in houston for sure especially in the summer months but yeah. so let's talk about how can businesses get involved in supporting the zoo at a corporate level well many of them already are which we are very grateful for i think we're we have donor, you know, donor opportunities and sponsorship opportunities for whether it's for you know big exhibits or whether it's for events at the zoo. You know, we do a, a whole host of you know evening events and special events and activities around zoo lights in particular. That's a very popular uh, venue for people. So we have you know an array of sponsorships that you know for businesses big and small. You can also use the zoo as a venue for your staff and for your teams. We have incredible spaces that can be rented out and to have a, you know, a holiday party at the zoo or a business meeting at the zoo. All those things are, we have venues that are set up for that uh, and we're building some new ones. They're going to be even better. And then, you know, getting, I think a lot of organizations are interested in, you know, being connected to the conservation mission that we offer and finding ways for, you know, we're doing, I don't want to call it behavior change because that's pushing it a little hard, but the idea of, you know, what is it that we can each do in our individual lives or as families or as businesses to minimize the impact on the environment, whether it's, you know, recycling plastic water bottles or turning out the lights during bird migration season. Those are all things that we have found are really attractive as partnership opportunities with a lot of companies here in Houston. So. Lots we can do. Very good. Well, okay, so I'm going to put you on the spot. What's your favorite exhibit at the zoo? I'm pretty partial right now to the Pantanal. Uh, okay. I have to admit, we, you know, that was a labor of love. We spent, you know, I was able to spend time actually in the real Pantanal to kind of doing research about it and getting to learn about the, it's an amazing place because it's sort of like southeastern Texas in a lot of ways. It's got, it's dead flat. It floods pretty frequently, in fact, every year. <laughs> It's a uh, 
a lot of cattle grazing happens there. There's a cowboy culture, and it's hot and humid. You know, sound familiar? Yeah. But the things that's different are there are anacondas, and there are jaguars, and there are giant river otters, and this incredible wildlife. So it made sense for us to do that here in Texas That for a lot of reasons. And, again, it's no one else has done an exhibit about it, so I like the uniqueness of it. But... That said, I think the Galapagos is going to be pretty cool, too. Sounds like it. Well, well Lee, I, I want to turn now uh, to a few things i like to close out with, just personal. You're, you've only been in Texas seven years now, but I ask all my guests whether your preference is Tex-Mex or barbecue. Ooh, that's tough. <laughs> <laughs> You're new well, to both, I guess, or newer well, to both. You know, I've had, I've had supposed Tex-Mex and supposed barbecue before. Now I know what the real deal is. I so, got you. And actually, I guess I probably have Tex-Mex a little more often than barbecue, but both are on the diet every week. So Okay. Uh, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Any, if you could take a sabbatical for 30 days, where would you go and what would you do? Mm. You know, any chance I get to go out and see wild animals in wild places, I, I grab onto. You know, a place I've never been is Antarctica. So I'm like, okay. if given 30 days and, and a blank check, that's maybe where I would go. But, you know, I've been to Africa about 30 times to see wildlife in different countries there. And that, wow. I can't wait for the 31st. So yeah. um, and I think all of the above are places that I would love to go. You know, back to Australia, back to South America. You know, the world is amazing. And... And the thing I, you know, I love the fact that my job and my interests and my hobbies are kind of all one big thing. Well, I say uh, do what you love and it never feels like work, right? That's right. So That's right. Lee, thanks so much for taking time to uh, come share the zoo story and a little bit about yourself as well. Y'all are doing great things and it's certainly, you know, a a jewel of Houston and Houstonians. If they're not proud of, they need to go get experience with it because they will be proud of everything y'all are doing at the Houston Zoo. So. Thank you again. Much appreciated. Thanks. And there we have it. Another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at BoyerMiller.com forward slash podcast. And you can find out more about all the ways our firm can help you at BoyerMiller.com. That's it for this episode. Have a great week and we'll talk to you next time.